passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, everybody, it is... UFC 257 Fight Week, and joining us here at Post Wrestling, a man who is there in Abu Dhabi on UFC Fight Island from MMA Junkie and USA Today, your friend and mine, Mike Bond is with us. Mike, how are you? I'm good, man. It's uh miss talking to you, but yeah, it's good to be out here. My first fight week since March, so it's been pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, a long break. And yeah, the first, the fights the other night with the Max Holloway card, that was the first fight I saw live since Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. So I, safe to say Max Holloway's performance <laughs> washed that bad taste out of my mouth. Quite a contrast in uh, main event performances uh, <laughs> that we'll get into. The opposite. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is kind of just the process you had to go through of of getting to Abu Dhabi for a member of the media. Can you just kind of tell us kind of the Coles Notes version of you know, you start in in Vegas and tell us the process of like the testing and the all, all of the the travel. Yeah, so I was actually in Vancouver before uh, spending some time with family for Christmas. And when I left Toronto to go back there, I didn't know I was going to be coming here. I thought it was maybe like a, a small chance. So I threw like one Hawaiian shirt in my suitcase of being like <laughs> maybe in like a pair of shorts. Uh, but yeah, once it got confirmed, I had to provide the UFC with a clean COVID test uh, 10 days before departure, which was about you know, eight days before I flew to Vegas. Did that, flew down there um, you know, via a connection through Seattle. And then once I arrived in Las Vegas, you go immediately into the hotel and get a COVID test. And then they put you in your room for a quarantine. And I was in that room doing that for about 36 hours. I got there Wednesday afternoon and the flight was like, we left to the airport about 3 a.m. Friday morning wow. to go take the flight. So yeah, I was in that room. Uh, we take the charter over, which was, I believe, 16 hours. And so that was an interesting flight. I mean, that's the longest one I've taken. I remember when I flew uh, Tokyo to Toronto once after one of the cards, that was like 13 hours. So this was a, a little more than that. But of course, it, it was great service. There wasn't every seat wasn't full or anything. So you pretty much had a row to yourself. So it, it was good. You felt safe on there. And then the moment you land, uh, they take you straight to the hotel in a shuttle. You get COVID tested right away, and then you're in your room for a 48-hour quarantine, which ended up being about 50 hours for me just because the results, I guess, were a touch slow to get back. Um, you go take the one test. Once the result comes back after about 24 hours, you go down and get tested again, go right back in your room, and then you're in there. And that, that was a little challenging, honestly. I mean, the first, strangely enough, like the first four hours of the quarantine felt like the hardest part for me, just because I guess it was like such a new experience. I just got off a long flight, just did the quarantine in Vegas. But once I got through that little bit and like actually got a night's sleep, I woke up the next day feeling far less stressed about it. And I was, you know, started, just started kind of getting to work, doing some prep and 
getting my mind off the fact that I couldn't leave this room. And of course they, they leave meals on your doorstep three times a day and you just bring that in and eat it. And yeah, so that was, that was a little tough. And then when you finally get that phone call saying that your test is clean and you can come down and get your official wristband saying that you're able to go into the safe zone, it's just a very great feeling. It's hard to explain. <laughs> and from this point, like we're, we're speaking on Monday, how many, like, are you tested throughout this, this coming week uh, coming up? Are you kind of in the clear that you're okay now until you leave? Nope. So you get, I've been tested again once since that was on the weigh-ins on Friday morning before the hallway uh, cater card. So you get tested pretty much before you leave to weigh-ins. So tomorrow, we're obviously speaking on Monday here, on uh, Tuesday morning, we will get another test before we head to the weigh-ins for Michael Chiesa and Neil Magny. And then you get a new wristband when that results come back. And then we'll get tested once more Friday morning before the Connor uh, Dustin Poirier weigh in and then I believe that will be the last test until we go back and I think it, once you land uh, you can request a clean test from the UFC like obviously uh, you know two Canadians speaking here you now with the border rules you need to provide a clean test within 72 hours of entry so I believe the UFC will oblige to making that happen for me just so there's no issues there mm-hmm. but yeah um, after quarantine there'll be three tests and then potentially four before my return. Wow. And these are all the, the nasal swab? Is that what you have to, to take? I So I'd only done like previously because I got tested once back in September before I did a family visit, you know, going around my, my older parents and young kids and stuff. Uh, I did the nasal one. And before pre-departure, I did the nasal one. Here, I did the throat one just because I wanted to see the difference. And oh my God, what a difference. That one is so much more tolerable. It's like almost just like when you go to the doctor and kind of get the strep throat and just have to like put your tongue out and they kind of just swab your throat, uh, except it obviously doesn't hurt because you don't have a sore throat or anything but yeah that was a, a much more tolerable one than the nasal one that one from my experience has not been the most enjoyable thing no, i i've had to have two nasal ones and yet it's just the longest 15 seconds of your life each time <laughs> yeah. there's no getting used to it um well that's that's really interesting just to to hear that that whole uh process uh behind everything uh what what's uh, give us kind of a sense of like what the uh the, the media side is is like over there is it like a significant number that's over there is it a rather uh, small group like we're kind of limited to you know the the post-fight conferences and listening to you know familiar names off camera asking questions yeah there's a decent amount of people i think there it's expected to pick up obviously uh towards these next couple of days when the people who flew out for the McGregor Poirier fight on the last charter, there'll be some added media there, but it was pretty chill. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd say maybe like 40 or so, maybe a little less, something like that. I mean, there's a few, obviously I don't see around, but yeah, we're, uh, it's kind of split up. Like there's the fighter hotel, like our safe zone here as opposed to last time where, of course, the first time they came in July, it was still like very much shut down here. So they had pretty much a very large safe zone. You could go to the beach. You could go to the racetrack and get driven around in a car. You could go sea doing. Once Abu Dhabi started to open up a little bit on the second one, it was a little more shut down. Like you could still like go to the beach where the Octagon was, but it, things like the golf course, which they had the first time open, were, clo- were open to the public again. So that was coming out of the safe zone. This time with Abu Dhabi being pretty much open to the most part our bubble and our safe zone is just the host hotel where all the fighters and you some ufc staff are staying and then the media hotel where i think some like lower level production people on the ufc side and then all the media are staying and it's pretty much just shuttles run back and forth every single hour 
and those are the only two places you can go as well as the arena which some shuttles go there too but obviously you're only going there pretty much for the fight nights and yeah so it's like it's very small i'm kind of glad almost that this is my first time here and i was not the past two because i don't really know what i'm missing out on in that sense but yeah it's uh it's definitely interesting just kind of having such a small bubble it's pretty much just the two hotels and and that's it and yeah to answer your question i'd say maybe 30 to maybe max 50 media in terms of the buzz that is building especially for for saturday night is it hard to get a sense of that given the unique circumstances? You, like you're on the ground, but it's it's got to be kind of – are you kind of just looking like online in terms of like where is this interest level versus past Conor McGregor fights? Is that at all detectable based on the environment you're in? It's a little tough, especially too because – the day the time of day where it's like busiest on social media and things like that is when it's the middle of the night here so like i'm not even really able to see like how kind of other people are covering it who are back in north america what the hype is if someone was to appear on like a you know first take or something like that we wouldn't really get to see that it would just be coming out after the fact so yeah it's definitely a little hard to get a sense i think the thing that gives me the best read is the fact that there was a crowd in the first card for the hallway cater event and i saw how excited those people were and what kind of noise they made and i can only just imagine what it's going to be like when conor mcgregor and dustin poirier are fighting each other so i think that kind of gave me the biggest read on on the hype side of it but for the most part all i can really register in that regard is like social media clicks website clicks and things like that it sounded really great on Saturday's show. Like that crowd of 2000, like Dana White stated this after the card, but it sounded like that many more uh, that were in the building. Was it almost surreal to be a cage side for this event and you've got 2000 people inside? It was, even though I've never been, I didn't cover a card in the no crowd pandemic era. So I don't really have a point of comparison, but yeah, it felt like there was definitely more than 2000 people in there. It was still it was almost like a best of both worlds. Uh, like you could hear, say, like the Sarah Morais fight, our fellow Canadian, like her you know, doing her Kayas and stuff like you could hear every single one of that. I think the very first fight of the card, Austin Lingo, his cornerman, you could hear literally every single word probably from the very back seat of the arena that he was saying. So I think you're getting a little bit of it both. But yeah, man, it was pretty cool to see some of these fighters of course i'm sitting out there on press row seeing them walk past and heading to the back and just the excitement in their eyes as they look past us into the crowd and see fans cheering and all that stuff even though they're pretty spaced out like there's pretty much five seats in between every group of fans as it's spread out there's plexiglass separating the floor and the stands so yeah it's uh it's definitely interesting to just see what that was like to have that kind of environment back but i don't necessarily have the perfect comparison just because i've never been to one of the first two fight island shows or any of the apex events without a crowd were you stationed close to the the commentary desk was were were you able to like hear the commentary because that that to me it would be so jarring like having called some events uh you know in a relatively small number but just the idea that everyone can hear you which you know uh paul felder talked about last week uh i'm just curious like is that uh, just something different could, could you even hear the commentary from where you were 
I couldn't. I was literally front row center on press row. And of course, the commentary team is on the other side of the cage, kind of like diagonal to us. So yeah, I couldn't hear them. That's a great question. I didn't really think about it until now. And I guess maybe on if we talk again on Wednesday or Saturday, I could give a better answer because maybe I'll be more looking out for it. But just from my memory of Saturday night, I definitely don't remember hearing the commentators at all. Well, uh, the big story coming out of Saturday was not the uh, the commentary, but rather what they were calling in the main event where Max Holloway put on what, Mike, I could honestly have no argument if someone wants to call that the greatest performance we have seen in a UFC octagon. Um, you are the guy that breaks down all of the stats, and he shattered so many of them on Saturday against uh, Calvin Cater. This I cannot imagine being cage side for this fight that was just – uh, jaw dropping to, to watch over the course of 25 minutes this guy came off like the this guy is the best fighter in the world on saturday yeah and what a platform to do it on right the first abc main event like god if you were maybe someone that were just flipping through channels that only had cable and weren't really a big ufc fan or hadn't seen many fights like i wonder what some fans like that if they saw like, that fight like seriously think of how bonner and griffin is uh immortalized in ufc history that we had this this great fight on spike tv on a live card i mean this was that infinitely bigger uh being on abc and you know the, the quality of performance we got out of max holloway like this it, it'll be interesting to see like wh- whether this does uh, a notable number being on a, on a saturday afternoon where it was going against other sports but i mean yeah. yeah you couldn't ask for a better platform for max holloway to showcase this yeah it was unreal and i've been following max's career for a long time i actually interviewed him before his first ufc fight when he fought dustin poirier and pretty much every fight since then and to see him do that like you kind of that's always it was just that was him in a sense but the volume turned up to 10 it was crazy like this is a guy and i ask it every time i interview one of his opponents before they fight i say max is a guy who once he gets snowballing and once he starts trending downhill in terms of like the volume and kind of getting the ball rolling downhill he's really 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 tough to stop and I asked Calvin Cater that, and you know, he, I think he had some confidence in his power and maybe make Max a little more reluctant to throw with that volume. But God, he didn't hold a single thing back there. Like Max Hall is a guy who usually builds up slowly, slowly, and more and more over the rounds. And pre- previous to this, I think he, he shattered his own record, but he had the most strikes landed in a single UFC round against Brian Ortega. And I think that was like the third round or the fourth round. He was that guy from the first second of this fight and he just didn't stop. I was absolutely amazed by the volume and just how many strikes he threw, how many strikes he landed. I can't believe Calvin Cater stood upright. I thought he was going to go be finished in that head kick in the second round, obviously saved by the bell a little bit, but as far as cage side performances and what I've seen watching it with my own two eyes, that was one of the most incredible things. And I think Max Holloway showed what he's all about and just being able to to do that to Calvin Cater, who is no joke, but he made him look like he didn't even belong in there. And it's crazy to think like Max landed his, I believe, 445 significant strikes, yes. which is the single fight record. Calvin Cater landed 133 too. And more often than not, if you land 133 significant strikes in a fight, you're probably winning. And it was a blowout on the other side. So that just goes to show how crazy it was. Yeah, uh, I saw like Joe Rogan posted like all the, these stats and it was you know, with the previous record as well, like 445 significant strikes landed. The the record had been 290. Like he blew these previous also records. Held by him. <laughs> yes, but also held by him, which is just amazing when you look at this. Like I, I honestly, if Max Holloway, for whatever reason, 
didn't fight again this year, I would have him as a strong contender for fighter of the year based off of this singular performance on January 16th. Yeah, he might be. And it's so crazy because I talked to him before the fight and I was like, I brought up, he loves to hear like the little nuggets I bring up to him in terms of stats and stuff because he has so many. And I brought up to him that he was the only fighter coming into this fight that had 2,000 or more significant strikes landed in the UFC. And the next closest one, I think, is Yoani on J-Check at like 1,700. And he said like, hey, one day I want to be the first one to get 10,000 significant strikes landed in a UFC career. So I started calling him 10K Holloway. And I didn't realize that he was going to try to go to that number in this fight itself. <laughs> I mean, he, like he has now 26, 18 land in his career. If he keeps doing that, I think like that 10K sounded like a ridiculously unreasonable number for me. But it might be a lot more realistic than I thought. Today, this has to sit as your very clear front runner for uh, fight of the year. As you look at it, like, do you do you view this as a strong fight of the year contender versus a performance of the year contender? Like, you do mention the fact, like Calvin Cater. I I think it was just overshadowed by Max's volume. That it's not like Cater was not landing. And I think if you're looking at like a point in this fight that Herb Dean could have stepped in, it was tough because Cater was. To me, he was never at that point where it was just like, my God, you're screaming at your television to stop the fight. It was – he was constantly either defending or getting out of the way or fighting back. Uh, I'm just kind of curious your assessment of this in terms of ranking this as a fight of the year contender. I think it's more a beatdown of the year, even though everything you just said there, like, of course, it's very early. We've only seen like one fight card. So the the pickings are pretty slim in terms of options. But of course, like it was a great fight too. one fight of the night. I'm very glad Calvin Cater got that extra 50K. But yeah, it was brutally one sided in my eyes. I mean, 50, 42. Yeah. I don't necessarily know how you can make that a fight of the year. And I know as far as Cater, like, yeah, it was. I don't think there was many chances for Herb to jump in and make it clear. I think maybe his corner could have been a little more forthright on that side. Dana White even said himself he thought it maybe should have been stopped in the fourth. So I wouldn't be opposed to that. But Cater did what he needed to do. He hung in there. Uh, I, you know, reported yesterday that he came away with eight staples in the scalp and a broken nose, which I think, crazily enough, is like lesser injuries than Brian Ortega had when he got beat down by Max, too. So, yeah, I think more so on that side, it was just a performance of the year, not really a fight of the year. But like Calvin Cater, you got to give him so much credit, too, for hanging in there and taking all that damage and just unbelievable stuff. It's even still kind of hard to comprehend even a few days later. Yeah, I think you you can watch this fight in, in two different ways. Like you can marvel in Max Holloway's performance, but I think also coming away with it very concerned for a, for a Calvin Cater throughout that fight, and that was very evident on commentary, specifically from Daniel Cormier. And I think like you know not 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 to be like a downer on things, but it's like you just go through like a story like Spencer Fisher last week that was fresh in my mind watching this fight. And you have to have that, I think, in the back of your mind. And that to me is still an evolving culture in MMA. The idea that, you know, after three or four rounds, like where, what are we doing by sending Kelvin Cater out for a fourth or fifth round where it's just been piling up? But that's, that's going to have to be a generational shift, I think, in the way that uh, fighters assess themselves. Like, like we have heard from, you know, Anthony Smith last year that, his corner is not going to stop his fights. I think that's a very prevalent mindset that many fighters and their corners still have. Yeah, it is. And I know I actually spoke to um, Calvin Cater's coach and manager 
Tyson Chartier the following day when I was getting a bit of an injury update and he said that he's been getting a lot of negative feedback. He says the first time he's ever really been hated on for saying that he should have stopped a fight or he wasn't protecting his fighter and things like that. And I think he's kind of having a hard time dealing with it. And this is a guy that just days later, MMA Junkie gave our co-coach of the year award to. So it's kind of crazy how one fight can flip the perception. And ultimately, I think he knows what's best for his guy. Um, I think Calvin's going to learn from this. Like, yeah, the amount of strikes he took were not a little disconcerting especially for the future but i guess if you want an example of maybe how this could come away as a positive look at brian ortega as i said earlier he got beat down arguably worse than max Holloway, maybe not as many strikes landed but here he is i know he had to take a, a long break after that which i don't know if i'd recommend two years to calvin cater but i don't know if i'd like to see him again for the rest of this year but mm-hmm. to you could look at brian ortega and say hey look what happened and then this man could be ufc featherweight champion two months from now so i don't think all hope is lost from calvin uh, he could potentially use this as a very positive, but in terms of long-term damage, like, yeah, you, it's definitely something that's a little worrisome and uh, he's got to be very careful with his next moves in terms of recovery. Maybe the type of matchup he comes back to in terms of maybe not fighting a heavy hitter or a striker, maybe you look at like a grappling guy or something like that, but you, you got to be cautious with something like this for sure. So let's shift focus a bit to UFC 257. And it's very interesting that we have a Conor McGregor fight where to me, it's like the shadow over this is Khabib Nurmagomedov and this interesting, (laughs) for lack of a better term, storyline that we have going into Saturday of these two lightweight fights. And Khabib is going to be, you know, sitting on his throne, uh, watching to see if anyone grabs his interest. Now, I take Dana White's uh, interpretation of this meeting with somewhat a grain of salt. I would love to hear from Khabib Nurmagomedov how this meeting went, but it's Dana pretty much going the uh, the Jim Carrey route by stating, you're telling me there's a chance. Uh, and that's essentially what uh, is, is being dangled over this. But nonetheless, we have two high-quality lightweight fights coming up on Saturday. Uh, looking at Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, you had a chance just uh, recently to speak uh, with Dustin. Give us a sense of what you detect from him, and you have you know covered all of Dustin's uh, major fights. Do you sense any kind of difference for him going into this rematch? He seems quite confident. Um, interestingly enough, he seems happy to be here. When he lost to Habib Nurmagomedov, he told me that he did not want to be ever fighting in Abu Dhabi again. And of course, that was a world ago. We, you know, it's pretty much his only option now. It's not like you can go fight in you know, Atlanta or somewhere like that. It's, it's pretty much Vegas or here. Um, but he seemed happy to be here when I talked to him. He says sleep schedule is down. He got here with the right amount of preparation. I think he got here like on last Monday or something like that. So like only one or two days after I arrived. So he's had his time to acclimate. He said his sleep schedule is good because he's going to be fighting. Let's not forget like 930 a.m. local time. That's crazy. Like local time, the first fight on the card on saturday or i guess sunday morning is 3 15 a.m which is just ridiculous i don't know how i'm gonna endure that i'm gonna have to uh, dip into the coffee pool which is not really my thing but yeah he seems in a good place um, i think he just wants to fight man like i asked him what, what do you think of this press conference on thursday like what's it gonna be like being up there on the dais with connor again and chandler and hooker and he's just said uh, like he's not really looking forward to that fight he's not here to talk he's here to fight and uh, he said he probably expects to get asked a lot of stupid questions, but uh, I think he's he's ready to go in that sense. He just wants to fight. Um, he knows how big this opportunity is for him. I think he knows what he needs to do there. He needs to avoid the power 
early of Conor McGregor. He knows how dangerous that can be, especially with Conor coming out saying he's going to KO him inside 60 seconds. And Dustin told me he wants a blood and guts fight here. He wants to go down to the nitty gritty. He wants to basically said that usually a short fight doesn't reveal who the better fighter truly is. Anyone can get caught, caught in a submission, something like that. Over 25 minutes, there's usually no doubt who the better man is. And I think he's really looking forward to getting in there. And of course he would gladly take a 30 second knockout of Conor McGregor and go home with it. But I think he's looking forward to really finding out who the better man is and dragging this deep and really kind of revealing his heart and his spirit and knows that that's a fight that tips to his favor. Because as we've seen Conor McGregor before, he can get tired late in fights. He appears to be in incredible shape, but that is still there and when things get tough we've seen conor mcgregor fold in that situation whereas dustin poirier you look at his fight against like dan hooker that's where he thrives does it surprise you at all that this has been such a respectful lead up to this fight on saturday especially given you know the entire kind of narrative of of 178 where conor was the complete opposite and in a weird way i think it's actually like more pointed when mcgregor <laughs> has been kind of given like this demeanor of Conor McGregor towards Dustin where he just slides in these little lines like the, the prediction of winning this fight in 60 seconds or speaking to uh, Ariel Hawani on the weekend and noting you know this is going to be a very smooth one for me like he says it almost like in a you know with all due respect but I'm such a better mm-hmm. fighter than this guy like it almost like it's it's more scathing because he has peppered it with all these pleasantries towards Dustin this time around. Well, I think that's part of the mental warfare here. Like, I can't, I can't remember which coach came out and said it, but he was like, you know, Dustin, uh, we don't need to talk trash for this. Dustin knows what happens last time. He was in there, and he's not going to forget that, whether it's six months, six years, or 60 years. That image isn't going to come out, and that's why, obviously, a lot of people are talking about the mental side of this. But, yeah, um, Connor, I don't know. He's He was the same way with Cowboy. That clearly worked out very well for him. Obviously, Dustin Poirier is kind of on a different level than where Cowboy is at this stage of his career. But um, for for him, I'm not necessarily surprised. But that's why I look forward to this press conference on Thursday. That will be a face-to-face opportunity. I'm curious to see what Connor's approach to that was. But I kind of had the same feeling going into the Don Cerrone press conference. And he was extremely respectful there. So... It's entirely possible that Conor McGregor is kind of gone away. And again, as you kind of pointed to, it's more just the, the subtle one-liners, the, the little shoves of this or that. But I do think he has a genuine respect for Dustin Poirier. He wouldn't be donating half a million dollars to his charity after this fight if he didn't. And he respects a good fighter. He respects a guy that he knocked out years ago who rebuilt himself, became an interim champion, has fought, I believe, nine main events in a row or something like that for Dustin Poirier. So he's he's a guy that, you know, how, how can you hate on Dustin Poirier? This is genuinely one of the nicest people in our sport, one of the most philanthropic, or if that's the proper word, people yep. in our sport. He gets awards for doing all his charity work and stuff. So, like, almost... I guess you could crap on him in terms of like fight talk. I'm sure at that press conference or when they get face to face, Connor will remind him what happened in the fight, but I don't think you can take like personal shots at Dustin. I think that's why he wasn't because it wouldn't come off as genuine because it probably wouldn't be. If you were to uh, get, get a sit down with Khabib Nurmagomedov this week, Mike, and I tried today. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure he is keeping things uh, with a very, a very tight lid, but I, it would really be interesting to like hear him uh, talk about that meeting on the weekend and where his head's at because you have to look at things here. I, I don't know if there is like beyond this 
30 and 0, like I don't know what his desire is to do another fight where we're talking about, you know, if you want to include Charles Oliveira, like five lightweight candidates, three of which he has he has defeated. And then the outlier is George St. Pierre, which I think Dana White wants to stomp out any kind of public uh, interest in towards wanting that fight. It's a very kind of interesting calculus when you look at this, that if that is the fight that at different points, both men have stated their desire to have that fight. Um, I think it's clear the fight that Dana wants to make is Connor with Khabib. And if Connor cannot get Khabib, uh, does that send Connor on, on a different path looking for a fight outside of the UFC and creating all of that uh, again with the UFC? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. It's so hard to predict what's going to happen here. I don't think even if Connor goes out there and according to Dana White looking for something spectacular, he gives like the most spectacular performance ever, knocks Dustin out in 20 seconds or something like that. I don't think Khabib cares for that fight. Like why with where he is now, the 29 and 0, everything he's done, what's the upside besides money, obviously, which according to Dana White, according to all the people around him, Habib has a world of and absolutely does not need another more penny, another penny for his life, his children's life and beyond. So what's the allure here just so he can potentially allow Conor McGregor to beat him and put that first blemish on his record? And obviously the UFC would love that because then you get a trilogy or something like that. But like if you're trying to negotiate Habib into doing this fight, I just don't see what the selling point is for him. So I think no matter what card, does i think dana white's dream of that rematch is going to die and ideally i'm sure for connor he fights someone else for the title after this but it would be like a vacant title but yeah i think for habib there i just said this on one of our other shows that we did uh, at mma junkie i don't think there's anything that's going to bring him back except gsp to this day um he hasn't done really any media here i know he's around cornering his uh, cousin umar Nurmagomedov, who makes his ufc debut i believe on wednesday and he actually did, though, uh, the Schmo was doing an interview, I believe it's on his YouTube page now, with uh, Matt Thomas, or Matt Sarah and Dean Thomas. And he kind of walked by and, like, walked into the frame, and he was, like, you know, started talking to the guys. And uh, the Schmo asked him, like, hey, do you want to fight GSP? And he's, like, yeah, like, I still want to fight him. Uh, we've been sharing DMs, and, like, he needs to come back. So I think that is the only fight that is really on his mind to this day. I did see him. He posed for a photo with me. He looks like he is eating generously these days. And I don't think a lightweight is right there in terms of making a 155 in the immediate future. So, yeah, I think he's just chilling. Um, I don't know how much truth or what Dana White kind of manipulated or added or took away from their conversation that they had face to face. But uh, I'm not getting the sense that he's super keen to come back to fight any of these guys. Like, I don't know what a Michael Chandler could do, a Dan Hooker could do, a Poirier or a McGregor could really do out there. Charles Oliveira is obviously on a great run, but I don't think he even adds anything to Habib's legacy if they were to fight. So for me, I still think it is GSP or bust for him, and the chips are going to fall after that. But um, yeah, I think maybe Dana... He said he's meeting with Habib again next week in Las Vegas because he's going there for some reason. I think maybe he just used that a little bit to, to hype up the event, kind of like the Habib sweepstakes. But I get the sense that he's not super keen to fight unless it's George St. Pierre, which you know Dana White claimed that fight was dead. He said GSP didn't want it anymore, and neither did Habib, which appears to be false. But maybe he was just talking about his own personal interest in making that. Yeah, it's... It's it's somewhat of a puzzling one, the fact that he is so adamantly 
against that fight, which to me would be the second biggest fight y- you could make. Like if your options are no Khabib fight and a George St. Pierre fight, I think it's relatively simple. And like the only thing I can like ascertain is the idea that, well, Connor, I think he can say whatever he wants publicly. This guy wants like the largest fights possible. And I think that rematch with Khabib is number one. And does does Connor just move on to fight another lightweight if that's not on the table versus opening up that Manny Pacquiao door and then UFC dealing with that can of worms all over again? I think they want to I think they want to satisfy Connor number one, and that's getting this Nermaga Madoff rematch. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, that's what they they badly want. Connor obviously wants it, but again, Habib holds literally every single one of the chips in that scenario. He doesn't need to fight Connor in any sort of sense, unless maybe he just really wants to prove a point of the, against this guy and shut him up once and for all. Uh, take away all the excuses or all the you know I was drinking leading up to the fight. I wasn't in shape. This, that, or the other thing. Um, but right now, yeah, I think Connor probably, if he can't get that would likely chase the Manny Pacquiao fight, but maybe something in the UFC appeals him. You put that belt on the line, you up the pay-per-view points. There, There's scenarios here, and it would be disappointing if he went in that direction just because we want to see Conor fight in MMA. It's been so many starts and stops. I feel like we've lost so many good years. We don't really know, despite the fact he's been a champion in two divisions and has some of the greatest performances. Like, Do we really know how good he is and what his true potential is? I think you can make a very good argument now. So uh, for him, I, I hope if he wins this fight, they can keep him active. He says he wants to be active this year. They can get him in there against uh, you know, Gaethje or Oliveira or whoever they would want to do for an interim or an undisputed title. But I think right now, I hope the focus is on MMA. But as you said, the, the money is always the biggest difference when it comes to Conor McGregor. And a Manny Pacquiao fight, for better or worse, is going to make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much on the table in that lightweight division this year, especially with an act of uh, Conor McGregor. Uh, before we wrap up here, uh, would be remiss not to talk about the Dan Hooker Michael Chandler fight. Uh, Chandler making his UFC debut at the age of 34. What are your expectation levels for Michael Chandler? He's been he's being thrown into the deep end here with Dan Hooker right out of the gate, which I think you need to do in terms like this guy. There's Probably more fights behind him than ahead of him, and that's a very safe uh, assumption for Chandler. But here he is, and I think we'll answer a lot of questions on on Saturday. A win, what does a win do for Michael Chandler, uh, given the depth at lightweight? Yeah, I mean, it would impress me even more if he was to win. He's had a bit of a journey here, too. Uh, They were supposed to leave, I believe, Friday morning from Las Vegas on their charter and it didn't end up departing until Saturday night. So he ended up doing about a 72 hour quarantine in Las Vegas before coming here and having to do the 48. So he's not even going to be out of his room until I think like Tuesday afternoon, maybe like an hour or so before he's supposed to participate in the media day. So it's going to be interesting to see what his demeanor is like. I know you can look at his Instagram. He's, I'm not worried about him making weight. He's doing his thing in his room. I think he's very professional in that regard and probably had, it under control before even coming out here but yeah for a little just a little extra sprinkle of adversity for him whereas dan hooker i interviewed him yesterday and he had already been on quarantine for a day so he's just chilling and relaxing and moseying around the hotel but for michael chandler yeah win here would be great and just so much depends on the habib scenario like if he was able to perform impressively and habib vacates the title maybe he ends up fighting the winner of this mcgregor poirier fight and 
for the belts. I think it really just depends on performance. If he goes out there and like lays on Dan Hooker for three rounds, which Dan Hooker seems to believe that's the only way he loses this fight, then I don't necessarily think that does a ton for his stock. The expectations here are pretty high. The hype is really high, and I think he needs to deliver in a win in that sense if he wants to be kind of validated and put in that discussion. But if he doesn't do that, in my opinion, Gaethje's ahead of him. Oliveira is definitely ahead of him and things kind of get a little complicated and you might have to look at you know, one or two more for Michael Chandler even but uh, winning here is obviously no matter what getting that foot in the door is really important because if he goes out there and gets starches everyone's gonna say see Bellator guys suck they're not on the UFC level oh yeah Twitter will be just a mess on on Saturday night if, if, if that <laughs> in, in immediate fashion but it's so Feast or famine uh, on top of this lightweight division where I think, it, especially for a Chandler, like a win does so much for him. It keeps him above water, but a loss that really sets you back when you list off just the, just the names that by default will be uh, ahead of you and the, the number of 34 years of age. I mean, that's, that's working against you in this division that, you know, a loss here, uh, how much of a setback is that versus, you know, you come out of the gates and make a big splash right away. It's, it's all about momentum, I think, in this division and, and, and the timing of victories as well. Like this seems like you're really poised for either a big splash or a, a setback right out of the gate. Yeah, and not to say it's not possible if he loses here. I mean, just look at one Eddie Alvarez. He lost his UFC debut to Donald Cerrone and then came back and ended up being the champion a few fights later. So I don't think it's completely out of the question. Not It's not doom or gloom for Michael Chandler if he loses this fight. But yeah, it's pretty important for him to come out and have a strong showing here. I think that's that's no secret to anyone, especially the way he's been brought in, the way he's been positioned, the way he's been paid. I mean, the reason he didn't end up fighting some of these other guys in the lightweight division is because they were not very happy with what they heard about the money he was getting and they want to be compensated equally or uh you know greater considering they put in the work for so long in this division so it's gonna get dicey here with a loss i think michael chandler like as much as anyone on the card really needs to win and win in a nice fashion well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us, giving us a sense of uh, what it is like over there in Abu Dhabi. I know you'll be uh, cage side uh, this Wednesday morning for us as the prelims start at 9 a.m. Eastern time. But for you, I mean, prime time on Wednesday. So there you go. Uh, for all the uh, the torture you'll go through, probably Saturday night slash Sunday morning, at least you get a – well, is, is this good or bad? Like you, you've got to be all over the place <laughs> sleep-wise. Like is a normal start time on Wednesday in Abu Dhabi a good or bad thing? Dude, it's horrible. I don't even know. Like, I'm trying not to think about it. I'm just trying to take it day by day. But yeah, like, it's <laughs> it's crazy. Like, we go, we're on local time here, prime time for Abu Dhabi, and then we completely switch the the script in terms of timing. So, like, I don't even know what I'm going to do. As I kind of hinted earlier, I am not a person who drinks coffee, but that might change come Saturday. Just embrace it, Mike. The coffee will be a game changer. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I can't complain. As I said, kind of off the top, I haven't covered a fight week in months. So uh, it's all good. We'll have 15 hours to sleep on the flight home. Well, Mike, uh, I hope we chat with you soon. All the best this week. Uh, you've got a ton of interviews up, including uh, with Dustin Poirier, Dan, Dan Hooker, and I'm sure many more to follow this week. So check out all of his coverage over at MMAJunkie.com. Mike Bond, MMA on Twitter. He's also got a thriving Instagram account of all the sights and sounds of Abu Dhabi there on Fight Island. So thank you so much for the time, Mike, and uh, enjoy. We, we will be enjoying all your coverage this week.
Thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, I missed you. Hopefully, we can do one of these in person sometime in the coming months. Yeah, we'll we'll earmark it. Uh, one, one of these years, we will uh, we will get back together in person when when the world gets back on its axis. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm counting down the days. Awesome, man. I appreciate it.